One of the things I like about living in Essex County is that we're surrounded by water. And you can pretty much you know, jump on one of our highways and get down to the waterfront and you can go from one side of the county all the way around through Windsor and Amherstburg and out into Essex there. And you can see the water that we have. And I, a couple of weeks ago as I was coming through Amherstburg along the river, I looked out and I saw one of those huge ships and it was being pushed along by a tugboat, which I don't, I don't know, I've always found tugboats kind of fascinating. They're, they kind of look cool and they're much smaller than the boats they're pushing, but it was fascinating to see this tugboat pushing this big vessel along the Detroit River. And the reason why we have tugboats, of course, is that sometimes these large vessels need a little extra energy just to kind of move down the waterway. Other times, tugboats are used to rescue, to salvage vessels that maybe have got hung up on a reef or grounded in shallow water. And other times, uh, tugboats are, are used just to kind of help the vessel maneuver. You know, it's, it's a pretty big, pretty big ship, so it helps it to maneuver through uh, maybe a narrow channel or an area of our province where there's lots of islands or things that it could potentially bump into. And as I was thinking about this, I, I believe this is a great analogy for life within the community of faith. We all need tugboats in our lives. We all need people that can come along behind us at times and just give us that extra push, provide that little bit of extra energy that we need to continue our journey. Other times we need Christian tugboats to come and rescue us. Maybe we found ourselves hung up, discouraged, floundering in our faith, and they can come alongside us and kind of pull us off of the reefs of life. And other times, we might not be sure where we're supposed to go. And so tugboats come along and help to maneuver us or direct us in, in the right way. This is where the vibrant church community comes uh, into play in our spiritual lives. As Westerners, we are hyper-individualistic in our mindset this leaks through in the way that we often preach the gospel. I mean, we love as evangelicals to talk about our personal relationship with Jesus, our personal prayer lives, our personal time in the word. And while our relationship with God is very much personal, it's also interpersonal. When God called us to himself, he called us into a church community. We are part of a global body of believers divided up into local assemblies of believers, local churches. And this is something we need in our spiritual lives. We need the church, just like large ships need tugboats. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we receive a message of accountability. There we are taught that we hold each other accountable to faithful living. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. It's part of life within the community of faith. That means we push each other forward. We urge each other on. We cheer for one another. We rescue each other when we're floundering. We serve one another in this way. So is my relationship with Jesus personal? Yes. But my relationship with Jesus Christ suffers and deteriorates when I disconnect myself from one of the primary tools that God uses to reform and transform his people. 
and that is the church of Jesus Christ. We really do need each other in this way. Join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's just start by reading the first two verses. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, right away, the first two verses of this chapter, we have at least six different facets or aspects of accountability. Six different ideas here that help us to understand the nature of our relationship with one another. And the first one is that we are brothers, or we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We interact with each other as a spiritual family. Notice that Paul and his comrades call this group of believers brothers. It's like, well, were they all physically related? No. But the church, while it has organizational aspects to it, while it has business aspects to it, just like your household does. Your household, if it's a if you're an individual, you're a household living by yourself. If you're a couple, you're a household. If you're a husband, a wife, with children, you're a household. Your household has organizational dimensions to it. You have a schedule to keep. There's business dimensions to your household. You have bills to pay. You have mortgage to pay. You have rent to pay. You have groceries to buy. But primarily, you understand that there is a special bond between you and your the members of your household. You are a family, your blood. And the church of Jesus Christ is often presented as an organization or a business. And when the world sees that the church is functioning like a business and that's their primary motif, or it's just an organization, just another charity, and that's the primary motif that it presents itself to the world as, they have a right to criticize us. What we need to understand is that the church, while it is an organization and while it is a business in that respect, just like your household is, fundamentally, those things pale in comparison to its primary identity. The church is a spiritual household. This is our living room. This is our shared home. Together we bought this place so we can get together in the hundreds and worship Christ and disciple one another and reach out to the world. And so we interact with each other as brothers and sisters. Why is this important for us to be reminded of? Because it shapes our approach. When we're holding each other accountable, when we're urging each other on, when we're rescuing each other from the reefs of life, it forces us to make sure that our approach is tender, that we treat each other as family, that we care for each other, that we're quick to forgive, that we're quick to forget, that we're quick to love, that we stick it out. We're family. Secondly, it says we ask. Now this word essentially refers to a friendly reminder. In accountable relationships, there's times we come alongside one another and we say, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to just ask you to consider serving in this area. I'd like to ask you if you've considered this weakness in your life or have you ever thought about maybe approaching this person and mending that relationship? We make requests of each other. There's also the word urge, whereas ask is a friendly reminder. Urge really is an authoritative push. 
Now, those of you that are naturally resistant to authority might not like this idea. But the reality is, is we're all under authority. And authority is also present among the household of faith, just like it's present in your household. And at times, we come up alongside one another and we give each other an authoritative push. It's like, you, you can't do that. You can't live that way. You can't say that. You can't keep participating in that. You can't be absent all the time. You can't be neglecting your spiritual disciplines. We interact as brothers. That affects our tender approach. Sometimes we ask. Sometimes we urge. We also remind. In accountable relationships, we remind each other of our history. We remind each other of what we've been taught, of what has been passed down from the generations of God-fearing believers before us. Notice that Paul says, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. Paul understood that the Christian faith is an imitative faith. That one generation passes on its doctrine, its beliefs, its perspectives to the next. It's kind of humorous if you think about it, that at times you have Christians claim that everything they believe just comes solely from their study of the scriptures. Everything they believe just comes from their study of the scriptures. Folks, the Bible is so big and so complex. Your life will not be long enough, even if you live to 100, to master everything in the word of God. We rely so much on the efforts, the hours, the years, the decades, the centuries of study that Christians have blessed us with, who've gone before us, who have wrestled with the nuances of scripture and passed on their insights to us so that we can then build on those. The next generation can build on those. We look back through the tunnel of time and we're thankful that so many faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ passed on good information, good principles, good insights, and solid doctrine for us to be blessed by. We also encourage one another. The writer says to this early church, just as you are doing. It's like, hey, I want to remind you of this, but I also want to acknowledge you're already doing it. So hear this. Coming to church is not always about getting new information or being told to do what you're not doing. There should be many times where you come to church and you're like, you know what? I heard the word preached. I assessed myself and I'm doing really well in these areas. Praise God for that. This is the, the affirmation side of scripture where many of you are living sold out, God-oriented, faithful Christian lives and you should be commended for that. And in your relationships with one another, people say to you, hey, you know, you're really good at this. I've seen you grow in this area. I mean, thank God. I mean, you seem to have this area down. In accountability, it's not just about being told what you're not doing. It's also be, about being affirmed in your area of giftedness. And then six, we point, uh, fifth rather, we encourage. You receive, you are doing, okay, six. We point to our authority. Notice the end of verse two. It says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul's like, hey, remember when I taught you this and that? And they're like, yeah, we remember that, Paul. 
Well, I just want to remind you that it actually came to me through the Lord Jesus. So he points the church back to its ultimate authority, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So six facets of accountability. We interact as brothers and sisters. We ask questions and give friendly reminders. We urge each other through authoritative pushes forward. We remind each other of what we've received. We encourage each other in what we've been doing. And we point to our ultimate authority, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a mature believer, you will want these kinds of relationships. You will want to be in relationships with people who are blessing you in this way. And in those relationships, as they assess your life and you assess their lives, there's a long list of discussion points, a lot of topics that you could talk about. Here we have three, three broad areas that Paul then proceeds to instruct the church in Thessalonica in. So let's practice this. Let's lean in and let's listen to God's word as we, were, as we are reminded of the need to press on in faithful living. So here's three areas of surrender to Christ that we can talk about today directly from this text. So the first area that Paul speaks to the church about and that God's word then speaks to us about is God's will for your body. Each of you has a body. I can see you. You can see me. You have a body. And your body is a stewardship given to you by God. You can steward your body to bring honor and glory to God, or you can use your body for dishonorable purposes. We can illustrate this using basic tools. So let's think of an ax for a moment. Can you picture me holding an ax right now? Are you scared? No, you're like, he's going to chop some wood. You can use an ax to chop wood, to put in your fireplace, to create heat, watch the beauty of your, your fire, or cook over it, or be warmed by it. And you're like, man, I, I have an appreciation for axes. They have provided this for me. Or you can take an ax and go take someone's life with it. Same tool used for honorable purposes or dishonorable purpose. How about a knife? We use knives every day. We cut up our fruit, our vegetables, our bread, our meat. We butter our sandwiches with them. A knife is an indispensable tool and it can be used for good purposes or you can go out and stab someone with it. Same with your body. Your body, think of it as a tool. It's a stewardship given to you by God and your body can be used for honorable purposes or dishonorable purposes. So how do you use your body, brother or sister? Verse three says, for this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for you? A lot of Christians running around. I want to know what God's will is for me. It's a fundamental question. Here's part of it. Your sanctification. God's will for you is that you would become holier today than you were yesterday. And continue to progressively be sanctified, meaning made holy. That you abstain, that means wholeheartedly, Walk away from, disengage in, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, meaning I've already preached this sermon before, but I'm going to preach it again because we need to hear it repeatedly. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This teaching serves to crush the lie of sexual neutrality. There's nothing neutral about sexuality, human sexuality at all. We can either use our sexuality to honor God or we can use our sexuality to dishonor God. There's no neutral band in between. We honor God with it or we dishonor God with it. We acknowledge as a community of faith that we are sexual beings. It's easy to come to church and acknowledge that we're spiritual beings. We tend to like divide ourselves up into all these different parts. And Sunday, we need to feed the soul. Well, when are you going to learn anything about stewarding your body? You're going to learn that in church too, because it's found in the word of God. And the word of God has something to say about our bodies. It has something to say about how we should eat and drink. It forbids drunkenness. It forbids gluttony. It actually has information for us about what we should take into our bodies. It also has information for us about our sexuality. Every person in this room is a sexual being. We're not ashamed of that. We're going to talk about that in church because God's word talks about it. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, one of the themes that is woven through all the pages of scripture is the theme of human sexuality. Even the use of things like he or she or this couple or this, this marriage or explicit references to sexual intercourse or sexual perversion. The Bible from the beginning to the end is a sexual book. So we need to talk about our human sexuality. And in God's word, we are warned not to use our sexuality as the Gentiles do. Now we're tipped off here in verse five as to how the Gentiles, which is a, a word that essentially means unbeliever. It's those outside a relationship with God, how they use their bodies for sexual purposes. It says, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles. What does the word lust mean? Lust is essentially a sexual act that is committed expressly for the purpose of self-gratification. There's no otherness to it. It's all about me. There's no God being brought into it. It's all about me. Lust is all about a hyper-focus on fulfilling your own sexual appetites. And God is trying to teach us here that God's people, yes, we are sexual beings. We don't deny that. We're not prudes. We don't make the mistake that the Victorians did in England that made sex a bad thing, a thing you don't talk about, that took books like the Song of Solomon and metaphoricalized them all to mean God's relationship with the church, which has nothing to do with the book at all. 
We're not prudes. We are pro-sex. But our view of sexuality is shaped by the scriptures. And God's people engage in a different kind of sexual expression than the proverbial Gentile does. This is part of our sanctification. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification that you abstain, not from sex, but from sexual immorality, it says in verse 3. Therefore, you cannot be growing holy in your sanctification if you are neglecting this area of your life. You can't just say, well, yeah, I don't have that part together, but I read my Bible every day and I pray regularly, so I'm good to go. No, this is an area of our life that is fundamental to align with the purposes of God if we're going to grow in sanctification. Again, the, the Gentile, the godless, have a morality, have a view of sexuality that is rooted in lust. So if you created a little chart on the top, you had in one column Gentile views of sexuality and Christian views of sexuality. Under, under this category over here, you'd have words like, I want, I need, I reject self-control, I do it because it feels good. That's lust. But a biblical view of lust is, yes, it's pleasurable, and yes, I benefit from it, but I do it to express my love for my spouse. Or I choose not to engage in sexual immorality because I want to honor my future spouse. I exercise self-control. I understand the devastating effects of sexual sin. Now we have all studied enough of history, both recent and ancient, to know We'd have to go on to Google to find articles to prove this, to know that sexual immorality leads to all sorts of problems. It causes diseases. It leads to sexual dysfunction where people have to rely upon pills in order to stimulate this part of their biology. It leads to the transgressing of others, broken relationships, broken marriages, even rape and sexual assaults. This, I think, is what is being referenced in verse 6 when it says, see that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother. In other words, sometimes sexual sin is committed just against ourselves and when it comes to lust or sexual addictions or pornographic use, and other times it has a direct effect on other people. The Bible talks about this. It's very real. And why is it that Christians need to hear this? Because we're vulnerable. We live in a world that is constantly lying to us, that is presenting us subtly and increasingly not so subtly with false views about human sexuality. And because we are, in a certain sense, sexual beings from the time we were born, we're born male or female, we need to be taught a proper view at each stage of our lives about what it means to be a sexual being. Little boys need to be taught what it means to be a boy. 
And girls need to be taught about what it means to be a girl. You're not the same. You don't need to try to be the same. And then when you get into your puberty years, you need to be taught about inappropriate and appropriate forms of sexual expression and so forth and so on as we mature through life. We need to be taught this stuff. And there's ways in the word of God that we can overcome falling into sexual immorality. One of them is through the exercise of the spiritual disciplines. Um, We only have so much time in our day. And if you have a lot of leftover time, a lot of wasted time, a lot of boring time, and you're not filling your mind with truth, you're going to be vulnerable to sexual compromise. But if you practice the spiritual disciplines, if you serve others, this is a blessing to you. If you're involved in accountability relationships, you're not one of those believers that just likes to put your you know, good face forward, or your good foot forward. You're, you're, you're honest with people about your struggles and your challenges. You have a group of men or a group of women in your life that you're able to speak to about your challenges and they hold you accountable. This is a a wise thing to do. You regularly confess your sins to the Lord and at times to other people. You aim for marriage. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. The Apostle Paul recognized that some are called to singleness Most are called to marriage. If you're a sexual being, pursue marriage. It's a blessing from God. And then listen to the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 it says, Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit is more than just a sign and seal of your future salvation and your current salvation. The Holy Spirit is also a resource given to you by God as you get your nose into the word of God and you're reading scripture and you're hearing truth and you're meditating upon it, when the time comes and you're tempted, the Holy Spirit's there and he's going to remind you of what's right and what's wrong. He's going to equip you to move forward if you've opened yourself up to his lead in your life. Now let me speak pointedly, if you don't mind, to the parents in the room. You know, I'll try to do my best to faithfully preach the word of God The youth leaders in our church are absolutely committed to faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God to your children and your young people. We're going to do our part. But we need to acknowledge that the primary influencers and shapers of the next generation's view of sexuality is their parents, their family of origin. And if you are a Christian parent and you want to be a responsible, high-functioning Christian parent, You need to create opportunities in your household to talk about these issues to your children from their earliest time forward. Now, obviously, you're not going to be talking to a three-year-old about sexual intercourse, but you are going to be shaping their understanding of what it means to be a boy and a future man, what it means to be a girl, a future woman. You're going to be shaping their understanding of how they're to honor God through their gender. Later, you're going to be talking about boundaries and rights and wrongs and the biology of human sexuality. But sadly, many people, even in good churches like ours, think, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to upload that to the pastor. Or I'm going to offload that to, to Blake and Rachel and their youth team. And I'm just going to, or I'm going to send them to a Christian school and hopefully they do sex ed once a year. 
Or we're just going to like be quiet. We're never going to talk about this in our home. We're just going to kind of speak euphemistically. We're going to be kind of vague and, you know, hope they read between the lines. And folks, if you have a boy, especially boys don't read between lines. Okay. They're black and white. You got to say, this is right. This is wrong. They're not going to think much beyond the words that come out of your mouth. Don't expect them to connect the dots. But if you're the kind of parent that doesn't speak truth to your, to your children explicitly, you're setting them up for future failure. In particular, in our culture, man, we live in dangerous times. Let me ask parents, if you knew your child's over here, that they're being sexually abused, would you be going that way to rescue or would you just be walking away nonchalant, whatever, It'll take care of itself. They'll work it out. All of us would be going that way. We'd be going to rescue, to redeem, to protect our child. So why is it then that among so many Christian families today, we allow our children from their earliest possible years, literally unfiltered, unfettered, unaccountable access to the most perverse forms of human depravity on the internet, through Netflix, through social media. I've talked to our youth leaders. They've surveyed the young people in our church. The majority of young people at Harvest Bible Church have no filters on their phones, have unfettered access to the internet, they're allowed to stay up into the night while their parents are gone to bed, watching whatever they want. Well, I just trust little Johnny. He goes to youth group. I'm sure he loves Jesus enough not to look. Now, what you're doing is failing as a parent. Because if that's your approach, you're allowing your child to essentially be sexually abused by the perverts and charlatans in our world. One of our youth leaders was telling me after the first service that studies are demonstrating that there is a massive rise in sex trafficking in Canada under the current lockdown. Why? Because all the perverts are at home and your children are at home and it's easy to throw your kid in front of the television or let them get on their phone or watch, watch, uh, get on the internet, do whatever they want. The perverts are out there with nothing to do. Your kids are on the internet. The perverts are like, well, we're going to go start trolling for kids. And sex trafficking then is through the roof in the country of Canada. Because these children that don't necessarily know better and aren't receiving any guidance are being lured in and being exposed to some of the most foul, disgusting, degrading life-damaging sexual perversion imaginable on planet Earth. And we have many people, even in our church, who claim to be Christian parents who are doing absolutely nothing to stop it. Now, sure, you're providing job security for future sexual therapists. But I'm telling you, Christian parent, if you do your job in this area, and you assume the worst and hope for the best, but assume the worst and hope for the best. 
Your children will thank you on their wedding night. They will thank you on their wedding night and at their fifth anniversary and at their 10th anniversary and at their 20th anniversary that my mom and dad taught me what's right and wrong and they protected me from the world's perversion. When I was a little boy, on two or three occasions, I can remember my buddies and I out on the sidewalk and all of a sudden, a little page out of some porno book went blowing down the street. We'd go grab it and look at it. Well, if I had unaccessed to a phone when I was 14, 15 years old, even the church boy, the future pastor, I can tell you, I'd go look for pornography every single day of the week if I could. And I know that every other guy and many of the women in this room would do the exact same thing. We're in church. We're going to be honest with one another. You do the exact same thing. Well, nowadays, most of your children are carrying around a Playboy book in their pockets in the form of an iPhone or an Android. And they are. It's not will they, might they. They are looking. And if they're not looking, they are being exposed. If you're not monitoring and policing and being a conscientious parent in this area. So I'm begging you. I'm begging you as a fellow Christian, if you've dropped the ball in this area to up your game, do not assume the best. Assume that your child is just like you, a sexual being. Just like me, a sexual being. And if we are not disciplined and we are not taught and we are not informed, we will drift into sexual perversion. But God wants to pull us away from that so that we can take this great and beautiful gift and pour out our sexuality into a biblical marriage, a lifelong marriage, where we can give and receive, where we can demonstrate vulnerability and nakedness that is unashamed, that demonstrates the spiritual union between Christ and his people. In fact, sexuality has direct bearing on the gospel. The ability to receive the gospel, the ability to understand the love of God, the ability to understand the intimate and adventurous union that exists between Christ and his church. This is the message of Ephesians chapter 5. So if we do not teach our children in this area, we in fact throw up barriers to their comprehension of the gospel itself. So again, in this area, we've spent a lot of time on this because it's super important. We want to be a church that is different. I, my heart goes out to the children in our society and culture who have lost parents that are engaging in this stuff themselves. I mean, your heart has to go out for these kids who are witnessing their parents utilizing pornography and engaging in all sorts of affairs and having no boundaries, but it has to be different among God's people. Let's not be naive. Let's not be naive, ignorant in this area. The second area of biblical teaching that we need to hold each other accountable to is in the area of God's will concerning love. Now, this is a highlight in the text because if you're giving the Thessalonican church a report card, apparently they scored an A plus in this area. It says in verses nine and 10, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia wasn't a city, it was a region. 
And this church was known among all the other churches as a loving church. They had a reputation for it. They scored really high in this area. He then says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So if you're an A+, become an A++++. If you're an A++++, become an A++++++++. Like keep growing in your areas of strength. This is an optimistic reminder and it's a reminder that we need to issue to our church and in relationships with one another. If you're holding other people accountable, make sure you take time to point out their strengths. Make sure to say, hey, you are an, an extremely loving person. Keep it up. I've noticed that you are like the first in line to serve. Keep it up. I've noticed that you, you love to give. You're always looking for opportunities to bless other people materially. Keep it up. I love seeing this in our own church. I love seeing small groups meeting other people's needs. I love hearing stories of people having others over to their home and being hospitable to strangers. I love hearing and receiving encouraging phone calls and texts from people. I love when people ask genuine questions, the ones that go beyond, hey, how you doing? To what are your highs and lows? What are some of the things you're struggling with? What's God doing in your life? Those genuine questions that demonstrate that you care about other people. Even loving rebuke. Hey, brother, I don't really want to say this. It's kind of awkward. I mean, I'm not perfect either, but I, you know, I'm concerned about you. And I kind of want, didn't even want to make this phone call, but I want to let you know that you know, I think you're struggling in this area and this isn't appropriate. That's loving. That's loving rebuke. These are the ways we love one another. And we need to urge each other to do even more. What are your areas of spiritual maturity? If God were to give you a report card, what are the areas of your spiritual walk where you'd get an A plus? All of you have some. And you don't need to be prideful not to acknowledge how God has sanctified you. We all have areas of strength and we all have areas of weakness. And we should celebrate and praise God for the areas of our sanctification and then keep it up and keep growing in these areas. The third and final area is in God's will pertaining to lifestyle. Now, I wrestled with what word to use here. Lifestyle is probably a little too general, but you'll get the point as I read for you verses 11 and 12. These are like three just general aspects that should characterize the Christian life in terms of the way we use our time and our perspective on life, the Bible says, and to aspire, that means to desire, to move toward, to reach out for, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the second verse there tells us the goal. The Christian who wants to honor God strives to have a positive testimony with the world, not at all costs, because much about what we believe offends the world. But there's a difference between being offensive in your message and just being offensive because you're not a nice person. So we, we want to have a positive testimony with the world. 
And we want to be dependent on no one, meaning we want to kind of stand in our own two feet. We want to be responsible. Now, if that's the goal, what are the three things that the writer tells us we need to put into practice in order to get there? Well, here's three potential problems that Christians can fall into. The first one is restlessness, discontentedness, always on the go. Where do we get that from the text? The text says that one of the things Christians should strive for is to live quiet lives. That doesn't mean quiet like, I don't talk, I'm a mousy personality, I don't interact with people, you know, I keep my shutters closed, my blinds drawn. It's not quiet in that respect, but it's, it's a person that's not all wound up. It's a person that is content. It's a person that is well-rested. It's a person that can actually go out onto the porch and enjoy a cup of coffee and just kind of like, uh, not thinking about a whole lot right now. Not real worried about what's on my agenda next. Just enjoying the moment. I, I can tell you for many, many years of my life, and I'm still recovering in this area, this was a huge trial for me because I like to be on the go. I like to be on the go. I wasn't a particularly good student in public school. I was bored out of my mind. I wasn't a particularly good student in high school. I was bored out of my mind. But when I got into college, I'm like, I love this. I thought people were nuts for going to college for a year or two. I ended up going to college university for nine years. And I was driven to go. I'm like, I'm in my bachelor's degree. I'm like, it was a long, it was a long, drawn-out dinosaur, five-year bachelor's degree. They don't even offer those anymore. But I'm like, I, I love this, and I want to get into my master's. And I got into my master's and finished my first master's degree. And then I got into my doctorate. And when I got into my doctorate, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I think this is kind of an idol. And so I bailed out. One course, and I bailed out. And for three years, I asked the Lord to work in my life because I found I was so driven in school, just learning and growing courses and you know, knocking off degrees, that I wasn't actually enjoying the moment. I'd, I'd wake up stressed, not about today, because I was already thinking about tomorrow and next year. And so I took three years off, and then I went back to school and finished, another, finished my doctorate, finished another master's degree after that, and it was just like, whatever. I enjoyed it more. I think I learned more. I was more vertical about it. And even in ministry, when I was planting this church early on, it was just like, go, go, go. You know, you, you do everything. You're involved in things. There's always this stress. And there was always like this, I want to be in ministry, but I, I kind of want to just go live on an island by myself too. And again, I had to pray that the Lord would work in my life so that even in Christian ministry, I could find myself at a place where I can just kind of kind of enjoy the moment. Now, there are a few people that live too much in the moment. They don't even, they're not even thinking about tomorrow. You know, I mean, they have no idea what they're going to do tomorrow. They get a bill coming up tomorrow. They have even thought about how they're going to pay for it. But I think more often than not in the West, our problem is the opposite. We're constantly thinking about the future and we're not enjoying the moment. We know this in parenting. Now, my kids are almost all grown now. One's married. But I remember what doesn't seem like that long ago, older parents saying, oh, Aaron, enjoy the moment. It's going to go by so quick. I'm like, you're old. What are you talking about? Like, it's forever from zero to 18, isn't it? And all of a sudden, it's like, 
my kid's 18, and then another one's 18, and another one's 18. It's like, what, what is happening? How did I become a father-in-law? I'm too young for that. Life goes by so fast. And if, if in parenting, you're just thinking about, oh, I, I want to get my kids through those terrible two years, and then I, was, I can't wait for the first day of kindergarten, and then grade eight grad, and high school grad, and then get them into college, or the trades, or get them to work. And all of a sudden, you realize, I was just all about the next step and I wasn't enjoying the current state of affairs. This can happen in our walk with Christ. Where we're not enjoying the blessings of the moment. So there's a call here to like settle down. Live contented, quiet lives. The second ethical dimension here is basically about minding your own business. And there's a call here not to nose around in others' affairs. Now, I would say that one of the greatest temptations for many people today that doesn't help in this area is social media. There's some people out there that are letting you know moment by moment their every thought, their every concern, you know, their, their every unfettered, unedited opinion. And if you're like me, there's a curiosity about what other people are thinking. And you start reading through your, your, your feed and you're like, okay, now I'm like really depressed. <laughs> I wish I hadn't gone there. This is like TMI, too much information. And so there's a call here to kind of mind your own business. Not that we just kind of live monkish kind of lives, but sometimes there's a blessing in being ignorant. Some of the things that are going on in your life, I don't want to know about them. And I can tell you, you don't want to know about some of mine. We want to know enough to function, to be in relationships. But there's a call here not to spend all your time nosing around in others' affairs, but to take responsibility for yourself. The third area is in the area of laziness. If you look at the biblical text, it talks here about working with your own hands as we instructed you. Working with your own hands. Now, we live in a culture that has created, actually because of the work of Christians, but it's been tainted and polluted since, social security systems. Hospitals were largely the brainchild of the Christian church. So now we have social health care. Providing for widows and orphans. Who dreamed that up? Read the book of Acts. It was the early church that was doing that. Now we have social security systems. We, we used to call it welfare. I'm not sure what they call it today. Ontario Works or whatever it might be. But we have systems in place where collectively as a culture, we take some of our taxes and we put it into a pot to help people that are disadvantaged, single moms or whatever it might be, people that are disabled. We have disability payments and so forth and so on. And now during the current lockdown, we have CERB or CURB. What do they call it? What is it? CERB. Okay, we have CERB going on. And these things in and of themselves aren't bad because when people are in places of need, it's nice for us as a culture to kind of rally around, especially people that may not have families, and to help them out. But the problem is, is that people in our culture seem to be absolutely ignorant about basic economics. So a little less than in economics. For you to eat costs money. For you to have shelter costs money. For you to be educated costs money. For you to have transportation costs money. 
And as much as politicians would kind of like you to think otherwise and they're running for election, there's no money tree in Ottawa. There's no money tree at Queen's Park. Every single dollar that the government dispenses to you comes from another person who worked for it through the form of, through taxation. Not from some nebulous body of nobodies, but from an individual that got out of bed, put on their pants, put their tool belt on, got their coat on, and went and worked for it, and then came home and paid taxes. Now, the problem in our culture is people have this idea that it's actually okay and normal to live off the system. Well, it's okay to live off the system if you have to live off the system. But many people are living off the system that don't have to live off the system. We're increasingly hearing stories of people that have got CERB, $2,000 a month. They've worked part-time jobs. They're like, oh, why would I go back to work? It's safe. I can go back to work. There's an opportunity for me. But why would I go back to work? I make 13 bucks an hour and get 20 hours a week. I can make more money on CERB. Now, there's a, there's a, a technical theological word for that mindset. Probably never heard it before. But it's called sin. Because the Bible very clearly says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So if you're of the sort that thinks, well, you know, my, my parents owe me a cell phone and a car and a good education and they, they owe me, you know, my existence up till I'm 25 or 30, that's sin. If you're the sort that's taking CERB and doesn't need it, that's a sin. If you're the sort that's taking EI but you could find a job, that's sin. You may not hear it from your politician that wants your vote, but you're going to hear it in church because it's in the Bible. That's called sin. The Bible calls the Christian to be an outstanding citizen and that they are to work for their living, not mooching off of others. Again, we're not opposed to people that need it. The majority of people can work. And by the way, there's lots of work to be found in Essex County. Essex County is a very wealthy county. There's lots of work to be found in Essex County. This is why we import hundreds and hundreds of people to work in our greenhouse industry every year. Why? Because people don't want to go to work. They don't want, it's too hot. You know, I'm, I'm binging on Netflix over here. You know, I, I, I don't want to work six days a week, even though that's the biblical precedent, not five. I don't want to work six days a week. I get called from people quite frequently, even in our own church. Hey, you know, I, do you know any good drywallers? Do you know, do you know an electrician? Do you know, do you know any plumbers? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But if you talk to people increasingly, they can't find people to do work for them. There's lots of work to be found in Essex County. I've talked to employers, and I like to ask this question. What's the number one thing that you would look for in an employee? Now, you might think, in the old days, it was a degree, uh, transportation, you know, a valid driver's license. How about some competency? Not hearing those things anymore. It's gotten so bad that employers are saying, the number one thing I'm looking for in employees is just to show up to work. 
if I could just find someone that actually showed up at eight o'clock and stayed till four or five, they'd be promoted so fast to make your head spin. So here's the good news. If you're mildly incompetent, you don't even need to be that competent to find a job. <laughs> just show up on time and stay till the bell rings and you'll do just fine. Now rolled together, these aspects of Christian living bless and honor God. Being quiet, being content, minding your own business, working hard, meaning that the lifestyle of a Christian is marked by a deliberateness, restfulness, willingness to take responsibility for oneself, a hard work ethic. You do these things, you're not only going to be miles ahead of your peers, but you're going to be a good standing with God, which matters the most. So don't throw your life away and don't facilitate others disobeying this. Parents, don't facilitate your kids' laziness if they happen to be lazy. You know, I'm not going to just throw all our young people under the bus. We have a lot of hardworking, conscientious young people in our church. But if your kid drifts towards laziness, don't facilitate that. You ain't going to be lazy under my roof. You're not going to stay up till three in the morning watching Netflix. You're going to get off your video game. You're going to get a job. Oh, but I got so much math homework. Good, you just got another course. It's called a job. You're going to buy your own clothes. You're going to pay your own way. It's part of your education. Don't facilitate people's failure in this area, but rather, I love this word, aspire to it. That's what the word is there. Aspire, long for it, desire it, reach for it. As we look at this list of things that God has provided us to, all under the umbrella of keeping each other accountable and speaking into each other's lives, just re, let's just remember that. That all of these three big categories, the way we handle our, our bodies, the way we love each other, the way we conduct ourselves in our lifestyle, come to us through relationships, accountability to one another. And we need that. Don't be one of those people that's unpasturable. And I don't just mean that in terms of being pastored by me, but being shepherded. There's a lot of people that come to church, just, well, it's just me and Jesus, we got it all figured out. I like being in church. I like the preaching, I like the music, I like the friendships. But there's a lot of people, they're not pastorable. They jump from church to church. They will never join a church. They'll never surrender themselves to anybody. They'll never self-disclose. They'll never take advice unless it's, you know, from an arm's length away from a preaching platform. They're not pastorable. And because of that, they rob themselves of people really having insight into their lives and be, being able to speak truth into the specific challenges or strengths that they, they have. Instead, let's position ourselves to let people speak these kinds of truths into our lives so that we can grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, his plans are always good. And his purposes are always grand when we embrace them. <laughs>